Hello, and welcome to episode 26 of Killer Hangover. My name is Beth. And I'm Bettina. And this week, we will be covering true crime and paranormal stories from Kansas. Yay, Kansas. Yay, Kansas. Where this all started. <laughs> Literally. And mom will be covering the paranormal story this week. So she has the beverage. And what are we drinking? All right. Don't laugh. I mm, <laughs> no promises. I have been thinking and thinking of fun things to do with drinks from Kansas. Well, you uh, live in Kansas. It shouldn't have been too difficult. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot of wineries here. Mm-hmm. There's breweries here. Oh, yeah. But I went closer to home. Okay. And as you know, Tom, my husband, your stepfather. Yes. <laughs> makes delicious margaritas. Oh, the best. So, that's what we're having tonight. Oh, Captain Tommy's famous margaritas. Seriously, y'all, these are famous. <laughs> like, you walk in the door and it's, hey, you want margarita? <laughs> I'm not joking. No, she's not. <laughs> it happens to everyone that walks <laughs> into our door. Everyone that walks in the door. My two-year-old and four-year-old. Hey, guys, you want margarita? <laughs> that was a joke. That was a joke. <laughs> Not a very good one. <laughs> yeah, people have asked for his recipe. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to give his secret away. <gasps> I've been curious about this for a long time. <laughs> so Captain Tommy's recipe is one and a half ounces of tequila. He Ooh. says 100% agave. Three fourths ounces of orange liqueur. Mm-hmm. Um, then he puts a fourth ounce of agave syrup in there. And then he uses simply limeade. Right. Okay. So, um. That's why that's in the fridge all the time. All the time. All the time. Not one, but two or three. (laughs) like two or three in the fridge. God, we sound like alcoholics. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, when the pool is open, there's a margarita in hand. He said, uh, just the Captain Tommy way. <laughs> he said four to six ounces of limeade. Okay. However weak or strong mm. you want it. He usually puts it in a shaker yes. with a couple of ice cubes and shakes it up and pours it and drinks it. I don't know if you guys remember, but we did an episode with the martinis. Was that in New York? Apple teenies? Maybe. And remember, we couldn't have it shaken because oh, yeah, we I don't a have stir. a shaker. My stepdad travels to my house with a shaker. He travels everywhere with Actually, a shaker. Actually, let me correct myself. He travels to our house with a cooler filled with limeade, <laughs> tequila, <laughs> a shaker. He brings it all. Captain Tommy comes with <laughs> margaritas everywhere he goes. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> making him sound terrible. He doesn't listen to this podcast, so it doesn't So, cheers. Cheers. Ah, brings me home. I have ordered many margaritas on many Mexico vacations, many vacations, and I actually have stopped ordering margaritas out because they're never as good as my stepdad's margaritas. I know. I cannot believe he his margaritas his recipe and his steaks. I know. <laughs> no one can beat him. Alrighty, mom. That tastes so much stronger, though, than Tom's margaritas normally tastes. Are you adding a little more alcohol to our drinks tonight? Well, honey, I know what story you're covering. <laughs> and I know by the, the end of this, I won't remember what story I I'm know doing. You need a little help along the way because I know this story really affected you. It did. And I know what story you're telling me because I read the book. So <sighs> I uh, a long time ago. I think it was like 15 Long 14 times ago 14 in a galaxy far, far away <laughs> yep <laughs> yeah i'm a little nervous to cover this case i mean i knew i wanted to cover it but as i dug into it i got a little scared because i really wanted to be able to do this case justice many of you true crime buffs out there will know the novel in cold blood by truman capote or maybe even the movie in Cold Blood that was released shortly after the book. Right. Truman Capote said that, quote, in Cold Blood, 
is the story of these people, the Clutters, who died together November 15, 1959, and Perry Smith and Richard Hickok. It's the story of their lives and their death. And basically, to sum it up, sure. But this novel, In Cold Blood, literally created the genre of true crime. Oh, really? Yes. Capote's journalistic writing paired with the novelistic style created such a new kind of literature. It was all so unheard of at the time. You see it in all the documentaries now where it's fact, but they add the sense of dramatic. So it's right. more mm-hmm. fun to watch. I mean, he created that in this novel. Interesting. It seems in all my research that nowadays this murder story and the book in cold blood go hand in hand. And even though I will chat a bit about the book in this, I'm going to actually do my best to just tell the story of the Clutter family and their terrible loss. I will say that doing research on this was really difficult because of the book. Oh, because the book is brought up everywhere, everywhere. you look. Right. One of the issues, actually, I don't know if you can call it that, but... What was different about the book is the way Trim and Capote wrote about the killers, giving them life, whereas the reader, naturally, you have empathy, and then sympathy kind of grows for the killers by the end of the book. Mm. And think about his quote that he gave. It's the story of these people, the clutters, who died together November 15th, 1959, and Perry Smith and Richard Hickok. It's the story of their lives and their death. He names the killers, but he doesn't name the family who was killed. So doing the research was really hard for me because that's how the research read, too. There's no website for the Clutter family, but there are several for the killers. The family is basically summed up as the murder victims, and the story lies in the killers themselves, which I thought was wrong. I mean, even on Wikipedia, you know how on Wikipedia they have the history section, history about and all Mm -hmm. that when you go to do your research. Yeah, it's all about the killers. That's it. Like you Google the family and all you get is the details surrounding the day they died and then all the stuff on the killers and their case. It was hard to find information on them, the victims, the family, the ones that should matter. This is another horrible case with four pointless murders that just leave me really disgusted and frustrated all at the same time. The Clutter family. A family of six. Herb Clutter was the father. He was a K-State graduate. Go cats. (laughs) He worked as a farmer and was a pretty prominent farmer in the area, running a farm of a little over 640 acres. He was active in his Methodist church, known to be very charitable in town. He was well-known and well-liked in his small town of Holcomb, Kansas. Herb was married to Bonnie, Bonnie Clutter. Now, this is one sore topic when it comes to the novel In Cold Blood. In the book, Bonnie is discussed as greatly suffering from depression and being bedridden most of the time. Yeah. It is believed that this assumption was made by Capote from the fact that she had been seeing a doctor for some time for her depression. And keep in mind, this is over 70 years ago. So back when depression was still basically a very misunderstood thing. Mm -hmm. So because she went to the doctor for treatments of depression, oh, and not to mention chronic back pains, Capote painted an image of her that really upset the Clutter family. I mean, she was going to the doctor because she was trying to get help. Right. The family argues that she was not bedridden, but the opposite. Bonnie was said to be very good at organizing, as you will make note of when I describe the family home later. But she hosted all the children's events, her husband's co-op meetings, 4-H club meetings, family gatherings, worked with her church very actively. She was very engaged with her children as they grew up. I mean, that upcoming Thanksgiving, they were planning on hosting a huge family reunion with all the extended clutter family at their farmhouse. She was planning to feed and house all of them. Okay, that doesn't sound like a bedridden. bedridden. No. <laughs> no, exactly. Originally, she had gone to nursing school, but because of an appendectomy surgery, the recovery time at that time taking much longer than it does now, mm-hmm. she wasn't able to finish, but she really loved working and teaching her four children. She loved being outside in nature and teaching them 
you know, out just she reminded me of you in that way of yeah. just, hey, let's go out and get muddy and just she teach her kids that way. I'm not saying these people were saints by any means. I mean, they were real people. Right. But honestly, there was nothing really negative out there about them. They were just good people. The two oldest daughters were not present during the murders, but I will make mention of them still. There was the eldest, Ivana. She was 23 and living with her husband in Nebraska. And Beverly, 21, at the time was away at nursing school. The two children living at home were Nancy and Kenyon. Nancy was 16. She was kind of known to be a bit of a spitfire. She was good in school. Her cousin said that she was a little boy crazy, but she was active in her church and her local 4-H. She loved horseback riding and baking. She actually helped out with a lot of younger girls in the community, teaching them to bake as well as offer them horseback riding lessons. And she actually had two girls that really looked up to her that would attend church with her and her family every Sunday. Oh my goodness. Their families didn't attend church, so they went with Nancy. She was a good role model then. Exactly. Her cousin, who was interviewed in this documentary I watched from Sundance, it was called Cold-Blooded, The Clutter Family Murders. They were very close with one another. I think they were like only eight months apart in age. They would write letters to one another. I mean, this is before the internet, so. (laughs) Nancy did have a boyfriend at the time. She wrote to her cousin about him, telling her about when she accepted his pin and they started going steady. Accepted his pin. (laughs) Yeah. His name was Bobby Rupp. Now, Mr. Clutter wasn't a fan of Bobby. Not because he was a bad kid or anything, but honestly... Mr. Clutter was incredibly old-fashioned and was like, you date to be married. Oh. And there was no way, sorry, this wasn't going to happen. This is a Methodist family and Bobby is a Catholic. Oh, no. So he let Nancy go out with Bobby, but just kind of, you know, casual, like whatever. But I think he made it pretty clear that it wasn't going to go much further. Yeah. So the youngest was Kenyon. He was 15. There were two friends of his that were interviewed in that Sundance documentary. One was a lady, and when they asked her about him, she lit up. She was like, oh, he was so handsome. And he really was. He really was. She said he was going places. He was really good with tinkering with machinery. His father, of course, had it planned that Kenyon would grow and take over the large family farm, but Kenyon really wanted to go off to college and get a degree. His best friend, Bob, was also interviewed. Now, Bob's interview was actually really sad. You could tell he was trying to be like a tough man about it and just give like facts. But there were times where you would see him kind of like drift off, looking off, and he got he started talking about how Kenyon was always doing something, hunting, fishing, tinkering with his truck, running around. He was just busy, busy, busy. And Bob just got like really quiet in one part and his tears started to like well in his eyes. And he's like, yeah, you know, after the killings, it was just something we just didn't talk about. Oh, I mean, it just, it was really hard to see. So Holcomb was very small. Mm-hmm. Like Main Street was a dirt road back then, small. Like maybe 500 to 600 people in town, small. Okay. <laughs> like no one ever locked their doors. Small. <laughs> it was about six miles or so from Garden City, Kansas, which was a little, which was, you know, a bigger right. city. This reminds me of Alaska. Yeah, definitely. We're going to see a lot of similarities, similarities there. Yeah. The family built their farmhouse in 1948. They saved up for it. The home was built for $40,000. Four bedroom, two and a half bath home and was said to be ahead of its time. I mean, it had two and a half baths during a time that most homes in America still didn't have running water. In the kitchen, the cabinets went all the way up to the ceiling. And on the bottom cabinet, you could pull out a wooden plank that would act as a step. The cabinets were filled with hosting dishes and bowls for all the events. See, she was organized. Yeah, she was. What a cool kitchen. I know. (laughs) (laughs) I was reading that and I was like, "Uh, I want that. The home had an extra large basement. Part of it was kind of finished. They called it the playroom, but it was really just like like a 
extra living room down there that I'm sure the teenagers went down to hang out. Sure. Kids went down there because they did a lot of 4-H meetings. Uh, I'm sure that's just kind of like where the kids would go. And then the other half of the basement was the furnace room. Herb Clutter had built an extension onto the house for his office where he would handle work dealings for the farm. And it was just a beautiful farm. So Saturday night, November 14th, 1959. The family spent the evening watching TV. Nancy and her boyfriend Bobby had wanted to go out to see a movie, but Herb suggested they go to their movie Friday night instead, and Bobby comes spend the evening with the family watching TV that Saturday night. See, he wasn't disliked. He was watching TV <laughs> with, with the, the family. family. Yeah. Just he was a Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> Bobby left around 10 o'clock, not knowing, of course, that this was the last time he would see the whole family alive. Like I mentioned before, there were two girls that would attend church every Sunday with the Clutter family. One little girl, Nancy Ewalt, we'll call her little Nancy. Okay. She arrived the following morning, so Sunday morning, November 15th, 1959, a little after 9 a.m. with her father, Clarence. He waited in the car to make sure she got into the house before he drove away. Little Nancy went to the door, rang the bell, no answer. Waited, rang again, still no answer. This is very Velisca. She walked around to the back door and knocked, still no answer. Walking back to the front of the house, she sees that the two family cars are still parked in the garage. So they're home, by golly. They have to be home. They go to the neighbor's house. So the neighbor was actually like worked on the farm for Herb. And there was a lot of questions as to why he didn't see anything or hear anything. How close does he live? Well, Fairly close, but the barn separated the two homes. Okay. Before we get into the case, but he claimed that he was up all night with a newborn baby. And so they're like, well, you were up all night. How did you not hear anything happening in the home? Well, again, there's a barn between them. And has anybody been up with a newborn baby? (laughs) You just want sleep. Right. You're not paying attention to your surroundings at all. I mean, we got to cut him some slack there. But anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself here. So they go to the neighbor's house and they call. And they wake up the baby. The clutters. <laughs> Poor people. They're like, God, we just got the baby to sleep. <sighs> so they call the clutters and the phone just keeps ringing. Nobody answers. Clarence is thinking possibly the family may still be sleeping. So he's like, I'm just going to go in. Keep in mind, the doors are not locked. Right. By this time, the second little girl, Susan, had arrived for her church ride as well. And she, little Nancy, and Clarence walk into the home. Oh, no. Nancy, Nancy, it's time for church. The two girls head into Nancy's room. As they're heading to Nancy's room, they walk through the kitchen and they see that the kitchen's not been touched. So nobody had woken up that morning. And Nancy's purse was on the floor by the back door. They walk into Nancy's room and Susan went in first And as she walked in, she instantly screamed and ran out. Because of the scream, little Nancy was curious, so she went in. She saw Nancy in bed and believed the girl to be asleep. She reached to shake her. Then she saw the blood on the wall. And from that point on, the town of Holcomb, Kansas, would never be the same. Oh, those poor little girls. I know. Mr. Ewalt had gone into the house with the girls, and after what he witnessed, his first thought was to call an ambulance. Nancy needed help. When he went to make the call, he noticed the wires had all been cut. Mm. He ran to the nearest phone, calling the police, stating that something was, quote, radically wrong at the Clutter residence. Sheriff Earl Robertson, he was very close to the family. He arrived. Mr. Ewalt led the way into the home. They first headed into Nancy's room, pulled back the comforter, and she was found deceased. Ewalt says, quote, well, we better go look for the rest of them. Oh, Very quickly, KBI and Highway Patrol were called out. Al Dewey, a very respected officer with the KBI, he lived in Garden City. He arrived pretty quickly. He was actually at the church service that the Clutters would have been at. He knew them from church. And now he would lead the investigation. Upon searching the home, they found Herb down in the furnace room. He had been bound and gagged and had been shot in the head. His throat had also been cut. Kenyon was in the other room of the basement on a couch, hands tied, bound and gagged, shot in the head. 
Upstairs, Bonnie was in her room on her bed, bound and gagged and shot in the side of her head. Nancy was in her bed. She was bound as well, and she had been shot in the back of her head. Mm. So this is very similar to Velisca Axe yeah. murders. Just walking into this. It was a small town as well, and the town went into a state of panic. Locks were sold out. I mean, it totally changed the entire town. This was a very kind, charitable farm family. Family that was well-liked in the community. People were at a total loss as to who would do such a crime and why. Al Dewey collected a very experienced crew with the KBI, and they dug in right away. They fingerprinted and photographed the scene. They found a bloody boot print in the basement next to Herb Clutter's body. And from the print, they actually could get the brand of the boot. Oh, goodness. Even though it seemed that Herb's wallet and Bonnie's purse had been gone through, the only things taken from the home were a portable radio and a pair of binoculars. Huh? Maybe about $40. So it wasn't a robbery. So it wasn't a robbery. Now, who could have done this, though? The way the bodies were laying in beds and on a couch... Herb was even on a cardboard box with a pillow under his head. It was almost like the family was made to be comfortable. The killing scene. BTK. Scenes, yeah, I know. I actually thought of that <laughs> dang guy when I was doing this research, too. The killing seemed to be personal as well. Was the killer someone who knew the family? For a while, Bobby Rupp was a thought. The oh, family, the boyfriend? Yes. The family had all been shot either in the front or sides of their heads, all but Nancy. Like the killer couldn't look her in the eye. Within a few minutes of interviewing Bobby, Al Dewey knew he wasn't their guy. No. They still did a polygraph and all that, but that theory came and went. That's not saying the rumors did, though. The poor kid had to switch schools and stay hidden for a long oh, time. Jeez. There was a theory about a man who had possibly been holding a grudge against Herb for some business dealings and another man that was mad about Herb shooting his hunting dog. All rumors are gossip. Lots of tips. But no answers. Nothing. Investigators found that just the afternoon before, so that Saturday, Herb had had a meeting with a life insurance man and had met with him for several hours that day, discussing and eventually signing a $40,000 life insurance policy. The two had been discussing the policy for months. Would there have been someone that wanted that money? But that doesn't even make sense because the document was signed on a Saturday after five. Oh, so it wouldn't so have the through till Monday. Exactly. But note that the insurance company did do the right thing and gave the double amount payout because it was an accident to the oldest clutter girls. They did honor okay. the life insurance policy for them. Police kept up with the investigation and the family mourned. A funeral was held four days after the murders. Over a thousand people attended. Bobby and his brother even being pole bearers in the service. Oh my gosh. Interesting story, actually, because they didn't know who the killer was. The KBI had advised Beverly to change her last name, the um, second oldest daughter. Right. Nursing school. Mm -hmm. She was engaged and she and her fiance were supposed to get married uh, around Christmas time. But they wanted her to change her last name right away so she could stay hidden. So they just decided, hey, all the families in town. Let's do it. Let's just get married now. So a week after her parents and her whole family were murdered, she got married. The family said it was beautiful. In all their interviews I watched, they said it was light in darkness. And it kind of helped heal the community, really. Continuing the investigation, police look at the photos that were taken. And they find near the bloody boot print, a second boot print. This print made in the dust on the floor and not seen by the naked eye, only from the photographs. This print showed a different brand of boot. Mm -hmm. So this is not a break in the case, but it is a clue that there were two, two killers in the home that night. But still, no suspect list. It's now December and the Hutchinson News puts out an $1,000 reward for anyone that knows anything. Ten days later, they have their break. All of those theories that led nowhere. And here comes the answer. Literally worse than any tip they had chased down. Floyd Wells had been someone that used to work for Herb Clutter back when their home had just been finished being built. He was now an inmate in Lansing, Kansas at the Kansas State Penitentiary, and he's the one with all the answers. He claimed it was to clean his conscience, but I'm sure that reward money had nothing to do with it, right? <laughs> but he's in prison. Mm-hmm. 
He had heard it on the radio. He goes to the warden and he tells his story. He tells him he'd worked for Mr. Clutter and one day he had witnessed Mr. Clutter paying a lumber bill. Then he heard Mr. Clutter later that day saying that the bill had been for more than $10,000. In passing inmate chatter, he passed this little bit of information as well as some stories about a safe in Mr. Clutter's office to another inmate, Richard Eugene Hickok. Dick. Dick is right. Anyway. Hickok was, was going to say that, but <laughs> I'll say it, mom. <laughs> Hickok was about to be let out of prison. He was there for passing bad checks. Hickok had mentioned that his goal when he got out was to pull some quick jobs with his buddy and another recently released inmate, Perry Smith, and they wanted to buy a deep sea fishing boat and sail tropical oceans together. Oh, God, never be seen again. Right before Wait, being... Wait, he's in Kansas. He, he wants has, to sell a boat. He really <laughs> wants to get out. He and <laughs> Captain Tommy. Man, there's a theme here. Oh, crap. <laughs> he said that he and Perry were probably going to tie him up, rob him, then kill him. In his interview with police, Floyd Wells said that he didn't believe they would really do that. But then he had heard it on the radio, and he had to tell someone about it. Of course. $1,000 involved, too. It had nothing to do with it. <laughs> After checking old farm files and seeing Mr. Wells had in fact worked for Herb Clutter during the time he said, the search for Dick Hickok and Perry Smith began. Farm files could tell them this, as well as friends, family, people in business with or working for Mr. Herb Clutter. He was a man who disliked alcohol, as well as a man who greatly disliked cash. He wrote a check for everything, even if it were just for a few dollars. Hmm. There was never and could never have been a safe. Oh, of course. Tracking down the local family of Hickox, they found out that two men had last been seen the night before the murders and had not been seen again. The family had a hesitant itinerary for the men. They were headed to Mexico. More searching across the states began. Christmas came and went and Al Dewey was starting to get very frustrated. Bad checks from a suspected Hickok were starting to come in in late December from Kansas City. So police knew that the men had to be back in the States and nearby. They followed the trail of the bad checks leading nowhere. The men were too quick. Then December 30th, a phone call from Las Vegas, Nevada comes in. Hickok and Smith were seen at a post office picking up a package. Police stopped them and arrested them. In searching the package, they found that it was from them to them. <laughs> Did I lose you guys yet? They had gone off to Mexico and had sent a few things by mail to Vegas. Okay. I guess for whenever they return to the States. Mm -hmm. Inside the package, two sets of boots. Boots matching the boot prints at the Clutter family crime scene. No way. I mean, honestly, the old saying is true here. Everything happens for a reason. If they had been caught any other time before the box was received. There would have been no proof. No evidence to convict. The boots were the evidence the police needed. When brought in for questioning, they started with Hickok. He was known to be more of a talker. In interrogation, they started with the bad checks, then moved on to the murders. To bring on a confession, the boots were brought in as proof for the police to show. Like, hey, we've got you. In this confession, Hickok admitted, yes, he was there, but he never pulled the trigger, even claiming he was never even in the room when the killings took part. <laughs> Perry Smith wouldn't talk. Perry was this small little man but stood like a brick house against the police. The men needed to be transported back to Kansas, and in transport, they were separated into two cars, along with a huge barrage of police vehicles. I mean, this was a national case mm -hmm. at this time. It was huge. Hickok's car went first, followed by Perry's. Al Dewey rode with Perry. He's a very clever man. Once on the road, he turned to Perry, and he said, you know, Hickok told us everything. Perry looks ahead and could see Hickok in the car ahead of him and watched as he was dramatically talking to the men in the vehicle with him. <laughs> Perry grew absolutely pissed. Quote, Dick said that if we were ever to be caught, we would never say anything. But look at him talking. He turns to Dewey and he says, now I'm going to tell you what happened. Here's his story. Dun, dun. Sorry. I just Stop lost it. Kind of tell me. Tell law me. Law order. And so... <laughs> These are their stories. <laughs> Shortly after Perry was released from prison in early November, he had gone to Idaho and received a letter from Dick saying that he had an easy opportunity for the two. He came back to Kansas City by bus. 
Dick picked him up at the station. They stayed the night with Dick's parents in Egerton, and then they headed to Holcomb. They each had worn a hunting jacket filled with shells, with extra shells in the trunk of the car, got cord to tie anyone up in Emporia, Kansas, then stopped at a service station around midnight outside Garden City. They fueled up and had a discussion. Dick had said that if they were to be seen or identified, that that member of the family had to go, meaning be killed. At this point, Perry said that he started to get a bit nervous and asked to back out. Hickok wouldn't let him, apparently. They entered through the unlocked door of Mr. Clutter's office. They shine a flashlight around looking for the safe, never finding one. At this point, they hear noise and go out and find Mr. Clutter. They point a gun at him, demand he tell them where the safe is. There is no safe, he told them. This made Dick Hickok very angry. He threatened him a few times, saying he didn't believe him, demanding money. Mr. Clutter was adamant there was no money in the home. At this, they led him upstairs to where Mrs. Clutter was asleep. They woke her up. Like her husband, she said, there is no money here. Dick pushed her for her purse, where he found only a few dollars. From there, he went into Kenyon's room, woke him up, went into Nancy's room, woke her up. Dick was being so persistent with the family. Perry grew frustrated as well as disgusted with Dick. He led the family into the bathroom so that they could continue searching the home. Perry said that they decided to separate the family at this point, tying them each one by one, leaving them each tied and gagged in their bedroom. Tension is rising between the two men. There was even a time where Hickok made motions to rape Nancy, telling Perry that he could, quote, have his turn after. But Perry, disgusted with his partner, wouldn't allow it, and tension rose even more between the two. Tied up, they led Herb Clutter into the basement. Knowing Kenyon was strong, they brought him too and tied him up downstairs on the couch. Hickok kept persisting even more and more that there had to be a safe, but he kept getting the same response. Perry and Hickok started to go at it. Perry shouts, well, what do we do now? Hickok answers, like I said before, if we are identified, you knew what it means. I'm in favor of getting rid of them. So Hickok had actually enrolled Perry because he thought he was a killer. In prison, Perry had bragged about killing someone out on the streets oh, and had never gotten caught. Fact was, neither was capable of carrying out a murder by themselves. But together, and with the tension in this situation, they fed off one another. The arguing grew, and finally, Perry grew fed up, and with a hunting knife, cut Mr. Clutter's throat, then handed the knife to Hickok. Now this part, you get a glimpse into the darkness of what Perry is. Because he wanted Hickok to do something with his knife. But when Hickok did, Perry was like, quote, I think he just put it in the same hole I did. He was weak. Ugh. From here, the men went from room to room shooting the Clutter family, covering the women's bodies with their comforters. Now, this is the story Perry gave, and it's pretty accurate with Hickok's. Later on, Perry Smith gave the same account to an old military buddy when he came to visit him in prison. When he was done telling his story, he snickered and shrugged, saying, quote, This is a terrible thing to be laughing at this, but I have no feelings for it. Now, I'm going to move on to the trial, but I could go on forever and ever about these two killers. From Truman Capote's book in Cold Blood and all the information that I found in my research, these two were some incredibly interesting men. But like I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, I wanted to put the full focus on the crime itself, but most importantly, the victims. the victims. Right. But this leads me very quickly to mention that we started a Patreon account. I did an extra episode on these two killers, their backgrounds and their stories there. You can join as a patron on our Patreon and we will post extra episodes like this one there. I'll talk more about that at the end of the episode, but I needed to explain why I'm kind of just jumping right to the trial and not really going into too much depth on the killers during this episode. I think this episode may be longer than most anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I could really make it long with all the information I have to tell on Perry and Hickok, so best make it into two episodes. So the trial wasn't really to fight the cause that these men were innocent. They never claimed to be. The trial was more for how guilty were they? Prosecution was pushing for the max penalty of death. They actually took four days to make their case, which I th think is serious overkill. <laughs> yeah. 
And the courtroom was a total circus. People were standing in the back of the courtroom, what lining the, up every morning to come into trial. What was the defense? I mean, it, uh, I'll get there, but mostly insanity. Okay, of course. Seeing if they could get uh. insanity. Yeah. Everyone wanted to see if these two men would hang. Dick Hickok vigorously chewed his gum, and Perry sat there with a blank stare the entire time. I'm telling you, he was a super interesting man. Kind of scary. A psychologist was called in for the defense to give details if they could claim insanity or not. The judge didn't even let him take the stand. He just asked Dr. Jones to approach the bench and answer either yes or no for both men. Did Richard Eugene Hickok know right from wrong at the time of the crime? Yes. Did Perry Smith know right from wrong at the time of the crime? The doctor stood there silently. The judge said, enough and sent Dr. Jones on his way. Character witnesses were called upon, but were objected upon in the courtroom. The trial lasted... Character witnesses for these two guys. <laughs> exactly. The trial lasted one week. Famous state attorney Logan Green gave this closing statement for the prosecution. Quote, These were not ordinary murders. They were cold, calculated, premeditated, useless murders for the money and how cheaply those lives were bought with $80 worth of loot. That is $20 a piece for each of these lives. Mm. The jury all voted guilty with death by hanging. An execution date was set for May, Friday the 13th. But there were many stays and delays in the execution. This leads me to chat a little bit about Truman Capote's book In Cold Blood. One of the reasons In Cold Blood was such a major hit for its time was because, like I mentioned in the beginning, it literally started the true crime genre. But its greatest difference from everything anyone had ever read at the time was Truman Capote's way of not necessarily condoning these killers, but humanizing them. By the end of the book, you learn about these men. So to get this sympathy for the murderers, Capote really formed relationships with these men. Again, I really dive into these relationships and what was learned and really more about this amazing book and how it came about on that extra episode on our Patreon. Truman Capote wanted to write this case from beginning to end, which means he had to stick around until the end. He said that he would wait until the two men were six feet under before he finished his book. I mean, he needed an ending. So did he actually talk to them? to the men very regularly capote went and visited with dick and perry in prison every three months or so and he said that they wrote him regularly dick and perry wrote to him twice a week oh they waited on death row for five years mm -hmm. he formed great relationships with these men so in his defense like i said i go into this on the patreon he formed relationships with these men where he didn't have that opportunity to form a relationship with the with clutter the family. family right so you can see why that book became so much about those two men on april 14th 1965 the two men were executed and truman capote was there for their last breath small memorials are up in the clutters church in holcomb but one actual one large one was erected in town for the public by bobby rupp the Aww. old boyfriend. At the end of the documentary I watched, he still cared for the plants and the marble daily. Oh, my gosh. He even made sure that it had been made of cement, in brick, in marble. So if a tornado came through, the memorials would still stand. Oh, my gosh. So that's it. That's all I got for you. I really enjoyed researching this case. I literally had four weeks of research. I really... Yeah, I know you really got it. into it. And after I wrote up the episode, it came out to probably a little over two hours. And I was like, oh, my God, mom is going to kill me. <laughs> so I narrowed it down to this episode. And it's probably one of our longer episodes. I'm sorry, guys. So like I mentioned, I really dive more into the killers, the book, the movie, and some crazy fun details and facts of the case in the bonus episode on our Patreon page. I'll post the link in the description of this episode as well as on our social media so you can subscribe and become a patron. We want to do extra little episodes like what Beth had been talking about every month. Yes, exactly. It's $5 a month, which goes towards the production of our podcast and um, transparency here <laughs> towards the beverages we sample. Uh, I mean... Um, drink during the podcast 
Yeah, guys, the $5 gets you the extra little episodes, the chance at some merchandise here soon, as well as I think... Swag. Exactly. Uh, As well as I think we should release episodes early for those patrons too, Mom. I agree with that one. Yeah. What do you say? Saturday? Mm, I'm thinking a couple days early. I really think they deserve it. And maybe even a blooper reel here or there. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Those... I might have to drink myself a little more before I release I've some of our bloopers. I've listened to some of those. <laughs> anyway, that is uh, the true crime this week, guys. Interesting. Interesting. I read the book, like I said, very many years ago. I read ago. the book. Uh, whew, gosh, I had to have been in college. My sister-in-law, actually, Courtney, shout out to you. She recommended it to me, and I read it within a day. I was absolutely hooked and then I actually read it even again later that summer it really stuck with me and so doing the research I kind of knew like the case because I had read the book but I really because I hope I did it justice I hope I don't I don't know I hope I did the family justice I guess I should say well I think we also have a little because we live in Kansas Mm -hmm. and um you know you can kind of I don't know picture the farmhouse and picture the fields and I know. Picture. I wish Holcomb, Kansas was closer. The farmhouse is still standing. You know, the killers, Dick and Perry, they're actually buried not far from where I live. And I was telling my husband, I was like, we should go and see their burial site. And then I was watching this documentary and the guy that owns the cemetery, he was like, yeah, we get people all the time asking to see their gravesite. You know, they come, they stand, they look at a rock and then they leave. (laughs) But he asked, I wonder how often people ask to go see, see the, the Clutter family, family grave sites. Right. And I was like, oh, Alex, scratch that. We're not going to go see their grave site. <laughs> and this man is still tending the grave site? Well, the or? documentary came out a few years ago. I'm hoping he's still alive and well. But he was older in the docu- the Sundance documentary, mm-hmm. which you guys should totally watch. Believe me, it was it was awesome. Gosh. It was very touching, actually. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Now it's time for me to drink. And time for me to talk about KSU. Wildcats. (laughs) Manhattan, Kansas. So I'm going to do something a little different. And that I'm going to tell you about a haunted place in, well, actually several places in Manhattan, Kansas. And then some personal stories from a friend of mine. from these places love it i actually did a little interview our first interview i want to do more of these (laughs) it was it was a lot of fun so here we go one of the most famous quote haunted places in manhattan is or maybe was and i'll explain that later the purple mask theater i don't know if you ever heard of that while you were around uh, I was around. Why you're around here. In my day. <laughs> in 2015, the theater was actually moved from the east side of Memorial Stadium to the west side. Mm-hmm. So Isn't I Memorial di- Stadium haunted? Okay, sorry. Go on. You're telling uh, the paranormal. I never... I'm going to tell tequila <laughs> stories. You just go on with those paranormal ones. Thank you. <laughs> As I was saying... It was moved from the east side of Memorial Stadium to the west side in 2015. Of the questionable haunted Memorial so Stadium. So I don't know if it is still haunted. Didn't have any backing on that one. Because the theater moved? Yeah. So. Because the Memorial Stadium's haunted. Shut up. <laughs> but it certainly was haunted before the move. A spirit by the name of Nick is the alleged ghost that roamed through the theater, including the offices and prop room located on the second floor. Okay, it's all coming back to me now. Go on. In the 1950s, the building was used as an athletic center. Legend has it that Nick was a football player and that he was injured during practice and was brought into the building and died there before help arrived. Nick is said to play games, and it is not he's not felt as an evil or mean spirit. He has been heard walking the hall on the second floor, on the steps leading to the second floor, and on the stage. 
He is said to move chairs and props. <laughs> and according to several witnesses, Nick has moved stacked boxes to the floor and then restacked them. Oh! All while witnesses have stood there watching. Please tell me somebody pulled out their phone to record this. That's crazy. If I saw boxes being moved, your first thought down, would not be to grab your phone and then up. <laughs> I'd be like, (laughs) (laughs) there is also a report of a fire extinguisher spinning in the air and spraying white foam. This kind of reminded me of the, um, ah, the hotel, the shining in Colorado. Oh, your motel? Yeah, where Stephen King had the uh, dream of the fire hose chasing his son. Yeah. Oh my gosh. What's I was like, oh, hotel? it's a repeat. It the, does happen. Oh, in the Stanley Motel. That's right. Yep. <laughs> now I'm going to tell you some personal stories from my friend Penny Colors. Thanks, Penny. And from friends of hers that recanted stories of their own to her. Cool. So Penny's a theater major that spent many hours at the Purple Mask. She's also a believer in paranormal activity, as you know, and is pretty attuned to it. Penny believes that there may be at least two ghosts that reside at the theater. So Nick, of course, who she believes she has heard on the stairs as well as on the second floor. She describes an instance when she and a friend heard distinct footsteps coming from the second floor. They thought they were alone. So they immediately ran up to the second floor. Now there's two sets of stairs on either side. Right. So her friend took one set, she took the other. So we've got it blocked here. They ran up, met on the second floor. There's no one there. Brave, by the way, because what if it was an intruder? Oh, she's pretty brave. God, good for her. And another story, Penny had a meeting with a professor whose office was on the second floor. Okay. She was a few minutes early and headed up the stairs. As she neared the top, she heard the office door opening. She, of course, thought it was the professor opening the door for their meeting. But when she got to the office, no one was there. Oh. She was a little freaked out and couldn't really think of what to do next, so... Out loud, she said, thank you, Nick. (laughs) Penny's a hoot. So anyway, I believe she really did this. Oh, my God. And then started for the stairs because she wasn't hanging out. Oh, my God. When she was halfway down, she heard the door slowly creak closed. Your sound effects. And then click (gasps) shut. She said it was the click that sent her bolting down the rest oh of the gosh, stairs. Oh my gosh, I just got goosebumps. Outside. <laughs> yes, I just got goosebumps. That is scary. <laughs> I mentioned that there may be two spirits. Yes. Nick, who's playful, and another spirit who seems a bit more sinister. Uh-oh. Penny said that she and many she had spoken to have shared the following experience. And she said this was just strange but she experienced it more than once. Oh, no. Many times, play rehearsal, and especially if you're a college student and, you know, you've got your classes, you've got everything, well, play rehearsal will last well into the night. Mm-hmm. So it never failed that at 12 o'clock midnight, everybody would all of a sudden just intuitively look at their watches. Like nobody knew it was 12. They were in the middle of a rehearsal, and then all of a sudden, everybody just looked at their watches. What? They'd see it was 12 o'clock. And all of a sudden, this feeling would just descend on the entire group to just get the hell out of the theater. Oh, and my they, gosh. And they did. They didn't stay around. Midnight. That's weird. You think like 3 a.m. You've, you, you know, you've heard that. She said it was the weirdest thing. Ooh, that's eerie. Because they had absolutely like no idea what time it was. And then they all just kind of... Another report was from a friend of ours that is now unfortunately deceased. Shell was a great guy. I loved acting on stage with with him and just sitting in the green room BSing. I mean, he (laughs) he was this great guy. And by all accounts, he was a skeptic. (laughs) Not believe in ghosts. He told Penny an account of a night he was in the theater. And as Zach Bagan says... 
He saw with his own eyes <laughs> a Native American walking through the theater. <gasps> now, Shell did not ever make things up. He just... Oh my could this be the most sinister ghost? Oh. Penny said that a friend of hers and she were in the dressing room when all of a sudden her friend just turned. She said, it was so weird. He just turned white. You know the saying? <laughs> yes. Did you see a White ghost? like a sheet? Yes. He oh, actually did. Saying, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> he said he had just seen a ghost. Oh, my god. Walking behind her. <gasps> and she didn't see Was it. Was it a Native American, too? No. He, he just saw a figure? Just saw a figure. Penny said, in fact, she never did actually see anything physically. But she felt... And this is the way she described it. So I'm going to say it exactly the way she She often felt a weird dead energy when she entered the prop room. Hmm. And she often would feel she was not alone in both the prop room and the lobby. And a lot of the time she felt she was not welcome. What an awesome way to describe it, though. Just a dead feeling. A dead energy. Yeah. A weird dead energy. Weird. All right. So we're going to leave the theater now, still at KSU, but moving to a fraternity house. Ooh, which one? The Pi Gamma Delta. People say it's haunted by Duncan, who died during a hazing incident. Oh, no. The story goes that the paddle that was used to pledge Duncan was hung on the wall as a memorial, which was like weird, but... But when the paddle was taken down, there was a dark stain on the wall that could not be cleaned or even painted over. Paneling was finally used to cover the wall. Now, Penny did say that a friend of hers actually did see the stain and did see attempts to remove the stain, and they just couldn't do it. So this paddle killed him, basically. Basically. And they hung it on the wall? As a memorial. Wouldn't that be used as evidence? How would they have their hands on that? Well, after the trial's over, the pad- the evidence gets released. That's true. I mean, Zach Bagans did have the actual axe in the Villascax murder house. Zach Bagans has a lot of <laughs> murder items. Yeah, that's true. I guess, yeah, that's okay. Another frat house, the Delta Sigma Pi, seems to also have spirit occupants who are said to have roamed the halls since 1955 when it was the old St. Mary's Hospital, which moved from there to another building in Manhattan. A Delta Sigma Pi alum, Lauren Mall, wrote a book called Bedrock Values, which talks about the history of the Kansas chapter of the frat house. In the book is a chapter about the ghosts, actually. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. One ghost is George. (laughs) (laughs) No, are you serious? Please tell me a story has something to do with stairs. No, but George George was a patient at St. Mary's Hospital during the time of the move. Now, the story goes that George fell off his bed and was pinned between the bed and the wall. So that when they came around checking the rooms to see if they'd (gasps) been cleared, they didn't see George. Poor George. And George died alone in the room that night. So it seems that George really likes Star Trek. Oh, he was a Trekkie. Not Star Wars, Star Trek. Yes. An ice storm hit in the 60s, knocking out all the power. Now, I believe the the electricity was out for a week. Oh, my gosh. But on Tuesday at 4 p.m., in time for Star Trek, the TV all of a sudden started playing the show. All of a sudden. All of a sudden started playing the show. And did I mention there was no electricity anywhere Anywhere else else in the neighborhood? (gasps) Awesome, George. You get that, Trekkie. I've seen that George also liked to bowl. Members of the fret hear a rolling ball. (laughs) Man, this sentence. Members of the fraternity hear a rolling bowling ball. (laughs) 
say that three times. Rolling bowling ball. Say that three times after drinking six shots of tequila that seem to be in this one little drink. Oh, child. (sighs) Members of the fraternity hear a rolling bowling ball at night on the third floor. There's no one there. And in fact, the noise comes directly from George's room. Ooh, I wouldn't want to sleep in George's room. <laughs> Do they hear pins being dropped? No, just the bowling oh. ball. Gutter ball. Now remember, I said... <laughs> now remember, I said that there were two ghosts that roam there. There's also a nurse that roams throughout the house and does Probably her- the one that forgot her- about poor George. <laughs> it was her duty. <laughs> Um, now, from her, there's stories that maybe she fell down the elevator. She was backing up because she had a tray. And she yeah. was backing up and she thought the elevator was there. And oh, no. she fell down the elevator. She fell down that elevator shaft like Drake Cremore. Somebody out there, get the reference. Tag me. Footsteps, whispers, and screams are attributed to her. Oh, that stinks. So, during the interview, Penny told me of some, well, actually many personal accounts of areas here in Manhattan. I'll tell you of two of them. Okay. Or else the podcast will keep going. (laughs) Okay, so she used to work at a um, historical bookstore. We're not mentioning names in town. Many years ago, and this is, again, as the story goes, and I'm, I'm going to have to be up front here and say that I did some searching. I could not find any news accounts of this. Also, talking to my husband, who's lived in this town forever and knows like everybody, he did not know of this story either. How many margaritas had he had? <laughs> As an always drink. Okay, margaritas. a little bad joke again. <laughs> okay, so the story goes that many years ago, the then business owner shot himself in the room in the back of the building. Not once, but twice. Wait, how did he shoot himself? When the first attempt failed, he crawled to the gun and (gasps) shot himself again. No way. I know, that's just creepy as hell. That is terrifying. Penny said that one time she felt just the lightest touch, like fingers tapping on her cheek. (laughs) Another time she was using a... um, and I don't think they're called this, but a ghost radar, the ghost um, app thing that talks. Like a spirit box. A spirit box. Ghost box, spirit yeah. box, yeah. She was using a spirit box, mm-hmm. and one of the current owners walked into the room, and all of a sudden the spirit box said and read the owner's name. The guy the who. The guy wa- that had just walked in? Mm hmm. The guy who oh, just boy. walked in. And it never said his name before after that that's scary at a different time (laughs) this story's cool at a different time she heard distinct footsteps she turned around no one was there but the footsteps didn't stop they passed right by her oh my gosh (laughs) she said that although there although there were quite a few instances like this experienced by her and the co-workers they really didn't feel fear at all It was, you know, it was just part of working there. It was probably just a residual of just somebody that worked there. Spent a lot of time there. It was a historical bookstore, like you said. So Yeah. Or somebody, the person who started it. Yeah, she said it was Well, it had to have been intelligent, though, because I knew the person's name that walked into the room. Yeah, yeah. That would have been weird. Okay, so I said she didn't feel fear on this one. That wasn't the... mm, case in her next account according to penny in the 1950s or early 60s and i'm going to have to say here i did some research into it and again did not find anything on this okay so there was a butcher shop in manhattan which is now a home so it was on one of the streets by the campus and the shop sold meat in the front and the family lived in the back of the house okay so one day in december the butcher found his wife in bed with another man. And he's a butcher, so this is bad. <laughs> oh, he was working and decided to take an early lunch or something. Stepped back into the house. Well, hold on. 
Well, I'm trying to explain. She's got some balls, though, because he's working in the same building. <laughs> like, literally, probably just had to walk through a curtain to get to one another. <laughs> yeah. Found his wife in bed with another man. In his rage, he killed both and then proceeded to cut both of his hands off using the meat slicer. Cool. Wanting to bleed to death. But he ran out. Now, remember, it's December. He ran out of the building, fell in the... The victim. uh, No, the butcher. The butcher ran out. Okay. Ran out of the butcher shop. And because blood was squirting out of his stumps, he fell to the ground. Okay, hold on. Back up. So the butcher was cutting his own hands off, trying to bleed to death? Yes. Because he just killed the other two. Yes. So then he's running out of the building i'm totally picturing a monty python <laughs> totally <episode> right now <laughs> crap okay go on that's just my leg <laughs> it's just a flesh wound <laughs> he falls into the snow the snow because it's cold plots him Because it's cold, what? Stops the bleeding. Clots, yep, clots him. <laughs> what? Why is that funny? <laughs> I didn't say clocks him. I said clot him. Like clot? So the man sent to prison with no hands. <laughs> oh my gosh. Sorry, I shouldn't laugh. Oh, it was okay. a true story. No, you shouldn't. You're a terrible human being, but... <laughs> Now, fast forward. As I said before, the building is now a house. So Penny knew the two women who moved into the house and heard many strange stories from them. Ooh. Cupboards in the kitchen would never stay shut. Ooh, I hate hearing those The stories. women would close them, and when they walked back into the kitchen, they would be open. That's so poltergeist. It's so scary. They also reported seeing a little girl on several occasions. Why? Penny told me that these women were very good friends who always got along very well. But shortly after moving into the house, they began fighting, sometimes quite nasty and mean to each other. Mm. So they went on vacation and she agreed to keep an eye on the house for them. Penny, Penny, Penny. Penny. You just keep walking <laughs> into these terrible places. She does. Penny, too, witnessed the cupboards. Oh, gosh. She would close them. And when she returned the next day... They would be open. Oh, wow. And here's where it gets kind of spooky. She also spooky now. She also experienced horrible visions when she entered the house. And she kind of described them to me. She saw bodies laying on, on the ground. And it was like as soon as she was on the porch of the house and going into the threshold, mm-hmm. she would see these bodies on the ground covered with flies like butcher shop animal now these bodies? bodies were dressed in pioneer dress wow like the men had on dark suits and the women had on bonnets and long dresses the visions became clearer and creepier every time she came back to the house and pretty soon it got to the point where she couldn't even go into the house oh my gosh I have to mention here that Penny had not heard about the history of the house, and it was only later that she found out about the butcher. But then she kind of thought, this has nothing to do with the butcher. No. Could something else have happened on that site? Maybe was there a massacre on that site, like an attack on settlers? Sure. Were those the bodies she was seeing? But she said it was so vivid, and she just saw these just big flies on these bodies that had been just massacred i just want to take a moment and say penny you have an amazing gift i love to chat with you sometime i think that is so freaking cool i mean you're probably really scared and that's terrible to see that but that's so freaking cool okay go on oh she likes doing this kind of stuff as you know i mean she loves so totally bring her on our investigation that we're planning for october yes between you and her you're gonna draw spirits Mm mm-hmm not like pencil them, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> maybe an ink blot here or there. But I know, she's a really good artist. So. <laughs> we'll just do it both. 
Okay, Penny, shout out to you. Thank you for sitting and drinking coffee with me and telling me all these wonderful stories. So with that, that is a conclusion of some of the paranormal stories I heard about Manhattan, Kansas, and KSU. Wildcats. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Well, thank you, Penny, so much. That is so cool. You guys, email us, message us on Facebook if you want to be interviewed, if you have an awesome place that you want to share with us. We love these stories. Yep. We'd love to even do a telephone interview with you and get some of your personal stories. Yes, that'd be so much fun. Email us. We'll get in touch with some phone numbers. We could do a phone interview. There you go. Or just an email. That's fine, too. (laughs) Or just be lazy and do an email. That's fine, too. (laughs) Hey, I got a super email from one of my friends that told a really great story. Mm, Maybe we should do little personal stories on the Patreon account. Patreon account. Or we'll release them like once a month. I'm thinking that's what we're leaning towards. Yeah. Yeah. All right, guys. This is probably one of our longest episodes, but I hope it was worth it. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, Killer Hangover Podcast. Our email address to send us those stories is killerhangoverpodcast at gmail.com. And next week, we will be discussing a true crime that's kind of all over Michigan. Yes. Some in Florida. Yes. Most of it in Texas. Okay. I'll find a good, find a good haunted place out there. Well, until then, cheers. This was fun. Thanks, guys, for listening. Cheers, Mama. Love you, kid.